0: Hey folks! One of today's Ring of Fire radio sponsors is News Voice. You can check them out at newsvoice.com/ring. As you know, news media has become more and more concentrated, and also because of social media, we tend to live in news bubbles. One of the ways to combat this is a service that I use on a daily basis, when I want to know the most I can about each individual story I talk about, News Voice. They bring together articles about news topics from different perspectives, both the right and the left. Now, I'm a little bit jaded, so I read this to find out exactly what kind of lies the right is going to use to combat the reality of the news stories that we see. but. Your mileage may vary, and at the very least you'll get a well-rounded picture of any given story. News Voice, it's a website and app for iOS and Android. You can access for free if you go to newsvoice.com slash ring. It gives you a personalized news feed by aggregating a mix of mainstream media sources, international sources, and independent media sources. Multiple sources are provided for each news story, so like I say, you get a well-rounded perspective on any given story. The whole site is fueled by crowdsourcing, so you can upvote stories you think are important, so more people will see them. You can add stories to the site. You can add a source that's missing for a story. It's meant to be a completely open and democratized source for news that lets you get every side of every story. They also have a video interview series featuring guests from like Chris Hedges to Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. You can go download the app for free right now by going to newsvoice.com slash ring. That's newsvoice.com slash ring. Welcome to Ring of Fire Radio, I'm Sam Cedar. This is a very special post-midterm edition, and helping me run down uh, elections and some of the more important ballot initiatives around the country is our very own Heather Digby Parton. Rick Outson from In Weekly will explain what the hell is happening in Florida, and the Washington Monthly's Philip Longman will make his case for small business collusion in a time where anti-monopoly laws have turned against mom-and-pop businesses. Don't forget, you can go to ROFpodcast.com and sign up for the free one-hour version of the Ring of Fire radio podcast. And if you want the full show without commercials, become a member. That's the best way to support this program. That's ROFpodcast.com. Joining me now to analyze some of the positives and negatives from this week's midterms, Heather Parton from Salon, or as you may know her, Digby. So, Digby, uh, here we are, and um, because of the nature of of this week, we are recording um, more or less day after the election results. Obviously, we are already in the post-election era with Jeff Sessions being fired uh, literally, you know, 24, less than 24 hours after the polls had closed. But let's talk about what took place in terms of these elections, because I have a feeling by by next week we're going to be talking about uh, Mueller. We're going to be talking about uh, things that are sort of disturbing in terms of what Republicans intend to do during the lame duck session. But overall, it was a long night. And uh, we still have some uh, races that are still extant. This was not a tsunami, as it were. But the outcomes were, if you and I had had this conversation when we did uh, two years ago, I think we would be shocked at how well the Democrats did uh, this week.
1: Oh, I, I would have been. Um, I wouldn't have, I really wouldn't have known how to how to interpret it two years ago um but we didn't we you know we started off in 2016 i think i wrote a piece about this you know just saying look the most important thing for democrats have to do is to win one house of congress uh in in the in, you know in the midterms and that is going to be very very difficult you know the senate right. the map was ter- brutal and terrible and in the house the gerrymanders i mean we'd all been told this right that the gerrymandering of 2010 pretty much destroyed uh, Democrats' chances for 10 years. I remember all the hand-wringing about that, about what a mess it was, what a nightmare that we had lost 2010 which was, and, and allowed all, you know, just it was such a rout that it allowed all this redistricting to happen that was totally in Republicans' favor. So I think we were well aware two years ago that this was going to be daunting. Now, we have had, of course, in the interim two years of Donald Trump, and uh, that did sort of open up, I think, in all of our minds, the, the possibility, and the fact that his approval rating has been so static at, a, you know, a historically low point, hovering around 40 percent, that, that there was a good chance that, that the Democrats would take the House. I never held out any real hope that they would take the Senate. I mean, of course, you know, you can dream. It's like buying a lottery ticket, right? You know, you have a few minutes where you sit and go, gosh, what, where would I spend the money? But, right. the, the, but you know, I, I never took it seriously. The idea, because you know these are deep-bred states; they were flukes when they were won, you know, at a time of of, you know sort of democratic dominance under under you know they were coattails of of Barack Obama, who was actually popular. And uh, you know, I never took that seriously. And the House, the way it shook out, was pretty much what all the pollsters kind of predicted: that the suburbs and the the near exurbs were going to go pretty big for Democrats and that, you know, they would uh, be it take the House, but I don't know what the ultimate projection is, but it's something between 35 and 40 seats, which is a wave. Right. I mean, that is that is a wave. So, you know, I, I think that it ended up being probably more positive, but, you know, we live in this world where Donald Trump is president and the people who follow him love him and worship him. And no matter how much Democrats win, that is still kind of leaves you with a sickening feeling in the pit yes. of your stomach. You know, no matter what, it's really hard to be joyful about any kind of a win uh, because of that. And so, you know, I think it's pr- sort of natural for Democrats to just kind we still feel queasy and we should because what happened uh, this week was that it just reaffirmed this, you know, rabid, racist, <laughs> angry, you know, kind of blind loyalty to Donald Trump among his followers. And, you know, that's kind of scary. I mean, it really is. There's tens of millions of those people, and they haven't budged. I mean, they are there. They still love him. And I think we kind of have to recognize they probably will in 2020, too. So that we're going to have to deal with that fact.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think um, the obviously there was like a lot of I think emotion invested in the uh, the the Beto Rourke, the Stacey Abrams, and the Andrew Gillum races. And we should say that uh, the Abrams race is not resolved at all. Uh, this looks like it's going to go to a, a runoff, and uh, Gillum may hit that um, that number, even though he um, uh, conceded. Uh, there may be an automatic recount associated with. With Florida. So, you know, we'll see. But presuming those are not pickups, I think there was a lot of a lot of emotional investment in that because people sort of had taken the House for granted uh, that it was going to flip. And obviously the Senate is a huge uphill battle, both because we had a situation that two thirds more Democrats were up for reelection in this cycle than Republicans so he had a lot more to defend but you know here's a figure that uh, I think people you know know, and this is a function of the structure of our government, but uh, there's something not quite as um, as stark in terms of the House side that that reveals the gerrymandering but in terms of the Senate, you had nearly forty five million votes for Democratic Senate candidates, 33 million votes for Republican Senate candidates yet. And again, Bill, uh, Bill Nelson uh, not resolved yet. We're going to be talking more about Florida later in the show. But yet you have at least 51 percent of the seats, maybe 52 percent, maybe 53 percent of the uh, seats or more rather uh, going to the Republicans. So, I mean, that's that is that is problematic. Right. (laughs) That's a little bit difficult to swallow. The idea that you have uh, over, you know, 13 million more people voting for the Democratic candidates, but yet the Democrats are still stuck in the minority. It's hard. And I would say the other thing, too, that I think people were really looking for, because there is so much anger towards, uh, Donald Trump and his victory and, and what has happened since, whether it was Kavanaugh or the kidnapping of, of children at the border. And I could go on the Muslim ban. There was so much anger in terms of, uh, Donald Trump that, uh, I think people wanted to see Donald Trump really get humiliated and yeah. they didn't get that and I can yeah. understand the emotional response but people have to remember that you know what we're doing here is not um you know we're not on the playground in junior high school or high school this is very much about politics and about uh, gaining power and uh, so uh, people have to keep that perspective but look we got to take a break we'll be right back with more in just a moment I'm Sam Cedar this is Ring of Fire Radio I'm talking to the great Digby Welcome back to Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar here with Heather Digby Parton from Salon. So, Heather, here we are. It is um, uh, just uh, we recorded this, you know, about 24 hours after the polls closed. There's still uh, some stuff that is uh, extant. But obviously the the big news of this week's election, we also have some big news uh, sort of in the wake of the election, uh, which we will get to later in the program. But the big news is Democrats take control of the House. Uh, and this is just basically the overview. The Democrats take control of the House and they do so with a, um, a fairly comfortable margin of seats. They take, um, you know, anywhere they're still counting, but you know, let's say just approximate 35 seats. That's a, that's a wave without a doubt. They also gained seven governor houses which is uh huge and really interesting. I want to dig more into this in a minute. But they picked up um uh, Michigan and Wisconsin. Goodbye, Scott Walker. Illinois, they picked up Colorado, Kansas. Goodbye, Chris Kobach, New Mexico, Maine. And they also flipped six state houses. So that's hugely important going into the 2020 election. In terms of controlling resources and uh, redistricting. And then, of course, uh, we also had massive voter uh, and election reform in Michigan. Redistricting will be done in a nonpartisan way of uh, uh, voter registration by mail uh Maryland's going to have same day registration I think Michigan also same day registration uh Missouri is going to have independent redistricting I mean we we saw a bunch of those type of referendums we saw a, a medical marijuana pass in uh in Michigan California said they're okay with a gas tax uh New York state went all blue they took the senate that's going to have implications across the country um and down 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 the ballot in Houston, uh, I think all of the judges were replaced um, uh, by uh, super progressives. There, I mean, we have more of these stories, but um, let's just stick with the implications of Congress. So the House goes to the Democrats. What do you anticipate we're going to see?
1: Well, I mean, I th- it's going to be. I mean, the first thing that, we're, that you know, I think really should be said about this is that the the, the Democrats just voted in a bunch of younger, more diverse people into their coalition. It's much more representative than it was before of their actual coalition, and this is truly a positive thing. I mean, they've got people, I think, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, one other, I can't remember who, but there were two women that came in that are under 30 for the first time, and women under 30 right. have been elected to the House of Representatives. You know, this is hugely important. I mean, that's you've got to build your coalition you know, you've got to represent the people in your coalition, and having younger people definitely is important. Having more women, having more uh, people of color—that two Native Americans, uh, Native American women were not were uh, elected for the first time, two Muslim women were elected for the first time. So, you know, all this stuff is really good. So, you're going to see a different Democratic Party. But we you should know, also think- say,
0: just on that on that note, there are 112 uh, women who are now in the in Congress and that is a uh, a record in the history of this country. Uh hopefully it's one that will keep getting broken over and over again. Uh but, you know, it's nice to see some progress at least in that respect.
1: Yeah, and, and of course it mostly came I mean almost a hundred percent came right. from the Democratic side. I mean the Republicans barely recruited women and they did win a few races with you know with women. They they won one in the Senate with Marshall Blackburn of Tennessee. Um, And there were some others, but really this was a Democratic, you know, a a win for for women. It's a much, much bigger, uh, you know, female caucus in the Democratic Party than there is in the Republican Party, uh, for obvious reasons. Um, So that, you know, that's one thing that really is different. Now, the question is, is what approach the Democrats are going to take over the next two years? I mean, as I said to you uh, on election night when, when I was with you, I said, you know, look, the presidential race starts tomorrow <laughs> and, nice. and and it does i mean that's just the reality of our system and 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 it's really the reality in this world of trump i mean everything is kind of concentrated on you know i think ultimately uh on on ending this reign of terror so you know that that stands to reason that that's going to happen so that everything that the the democrats do in the house is going to have to have one eye on the presidential race, right? I mean, you've got a whole bunch of people who are running. They've got their issues. They're that they're kind of going to have to balance that. So I hope people keep that in mind. That whatever the House does is that part of what they have to think about is what's going on outside of the Congress in politics out in the country, because there are going to be people campaigning almost immediately all over the place, and it's going to be a different sort of situation than it was going, you know, going into it. And, of course, you know, we, we, you know, are they going to be trying to pass legislation on health care and, and, you know, minimum wage and all the agenda that the Democrats have? And I suspect they will try and pass those things because that means that they get, you know, their people, they get to vote on something positive and they get to go to their constituents and say, look, this is what we're for, and if we get everything, we'll pass it. But, of course, none of that's going to come to pass in the next two years because Donald Trump is president, and I don't think there's a snowball's chance in hell that he will find any of those things, um, particularly since he made a threat in his uh, wild and woolly press conference the day after the election, uh, that he was, you know, if, they, if the Democrats do oversight on him, that that's it. He will blame them. The government will come to a standstill and nothing's going to happen. So basically, he's threatening. If you do this, if you, do your, if you fulfill your oversight duties, um, nothing will get done. And I think Democrats will logically make the calculation that it's better to do their oversight (laughs) duties. Because, you know, this is the country at stake. It has to be done whether they like it or not. And so I think that, you know, I heard James Clyburn on TV and he said, look, we can do both things. You know, we have the capability of trying to pass a positive agenda and also do this oversight. I think what he recognizes is that if anybody has it in their head that Donald Trump is going to uh, compromise or cooperate or somehow work with the Democrats, that that's probably not going to happen because they are going to be doing this oversight and he's having none of it. And, in fact, interestingly enough, I think the dynamic in the Senate is suddenly sort of important in that regard. Mitch McConnell got up and said, well, we're going to see how far these Democrats want to take it, also threatening that the Senate is going to do competing investigations, I don't know into who, what, Hillary Clinton, I imagine, you know, something like that. Well, Maybe they're people just going to create for office. a little bit
0: of a noise so that that signal yeah. is not heard. All right, well, listen, uh, Heather, we've got to take a break. Will you join me in the next hour? we got a lot more to talk about. We're going to finish bet. this conversation, talk about the uh, state houses, the implications of the governor races and the referendums, and, of course, uh, Jeff Sessions getting fired this week. All this and more. I'm Sam Cedar, Ring of Fire Radio. Just ahead, Philip Longman for the Washington Monthly will make his case for small business collusion. I'm Sam Cedar. We'll be right back on Ring of Fire Radio. Hey. Wild things you're doing at night. Trips to wherever feels right. Doing it all just to feel things. Drinking's enough advice. Drugs just aren't suiting you right. You were just find as a real thing. Hey folks, you're listening to the free version of the Ring of Fire radio podcast. Week in, week out, try and get you the best of progressive ideas, policy pieces, reporting, and analysis on our uh, crazy political situation at the time being. Uh, But you don't know what you are missing because you're signed up for the free version. Free version's great, but the paid version, it's Great times three. That's right. It is three times as long as this version. Uh, More interviews with uh, other reporters. More analysis, uh, generally from Digby. Um, More to keep you informed. So check out ROFpodcast.com. Become a member. It is your support that makes this show possible. Without your support, we cannot continue to do it. ROFpodcast.com. When you become a member for just a couple of bucks a week, you also not only get the full show commercial-free week in, week out, you get total access to our enormous archives spanning over 10 years. Check it out. ROFpodcast.com. And thank you for listening. Welcome back to Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar. For many years, America had tried to foster cooperation among farmers and small-scale producers as a way of opposing corporate monopolies. Times have unfortunately changed, and here to discuss how that happened and why small business collusion could once again be the answer, Philip Longman, Senior Editor of the Washington Monthly. So, Philip, let's start uh, this conversation with the concept of, of rent-seeking. Um, I feel like over the past, I don't know, five or ten years, this concept has begun, uh, has, has gotten a lot more prominence, not just in um, uh, libertarian circles, but also in some liberal circles. Tell us, tell us what this concept of rent-seeking is.
2: Well, it dates back to the 1970s uh, when a guy named Gordon Tulloch sort of came up with it. It's the idea that there's some forms of income that come not from the fact you might have built a better mousetrap or provided some honest labor, but rather because you got Congress or some other organ of government to create a rule that allows you to reap windfall profits, or rents in this case, as they're called. So an example might be, if the government granted you a monopoly said that, you know, from now on, all ballpoint pens can only be made by you. You would therefore have no competition in the ballpoint pen market, and you could charge monopoly prices for ballpoint, um, for pens. And so that would be an idea of rent seeking. And that's a perfectly legitimate idea that there are all kinds of ways that government um, does favors to corporations, for example, through a particular government policy that allows them to, prevail over their competitors in recent times as you say this this uh concept has been expanded to the point that it's being used as a weapon against people that uh for like little people who want to do things like uh improve their standard of living through securing some kind of occupational licensing zoning all kinds of other things that where it's misapplied these days
0: all right yeah and before before we get to that misapplication maybe, contextualize for us, let's say, um, a, a drug patent, right? I mean, at one point, Mm -hmm. uh, at one point there is a, a, uh, maybe a a practical justification for it, uh, you know, some type of payback, but then at another point, Oh, and I guess maybe this is temporal or, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, then it does become more, I guess, rentier, if you will. I mean, what, Mm -hmm. we're, Mm -hmm. we're just, Unpack that for us.
2: That's a, that's a great example. Uh, a patent is a is a form of monopoly, right? It's a temporary monopoly that the government grants to an individual. Now, there's a positive case for why the government should do this in some instances. Uh, it is within bounds an incentive to uh, innovation, right? Uh, if if I'm going to go to all the trouble to invent some new better mousetrap. Um, <clears throat> it's good that I get rewarded for my efforts. And when I am rewarded, people are rewarded for their innovation, presumably get more innovation. That's the thought behind why we need some patents. And that goes all the way back to Thomas Jefferson. There's nothing inherently evil about that idea. But if you um, extend patents so that um, they apply to things that they shouldn't apply to, like you're patenting things that are just found in nature or you're extending the life of patents to many generations after you're dead, your heirs are still collecting on this patent that was granted to you. Well, it's hard to argue anymore that that's serving any societal interests, and yet it is causing a redistribution of wealth to you, the patent holder. So that would be a classic example of rent-seeking. A tariff can be another example, right? If the government passes a tariff, all of a sudden domestic producers uh, have an advantage that they didn't have before and can charge higher prices than they could before because the government has eliminated much of their competition from abroad. So again, there may be positive <clears throat> reasons why you uh, society would benefit from having a particular tariff or a nation would benefit from it, but it also can be abused in a way that's just crony capitalism. So rent-seeking isn't good or bad in itself, but there are Good examples of rent seeking and bad examples.
0: I mean, that's that's exactly where I wanted to, to get to, and I think to a large extent, that is um, a lot of what you're arguing in the context of of the uh, the case for small business collusion. So, talk to us about before you actually make that case. What does that mean? I mean, where do we see small business collusion uh, before we assess? Uh, whether it is something we want to encourage or not?
2: Well, a classic example of small business collusion would be a farmer's co-op. So what is a farmer's co-op? Farmers get together with each other and they form a collective or cooperative organization whereby they coordinate with each other on how much milk they're going to produce and what they're going to do with the milk, right? And they might build their own creamery and make cheese and and uh, other dairy products. And by doing that, the farmers improve their lot in life because when they come to market with their milk, they're no longer just coming to market as individuals with this highly perishable product, trying to sell it to some large corporation on the other side of the negotiating table. They're coming together as a cooperative, as a whole bunch of people who have, in some sense, cornered uh, a part of the milk production in some part of the world. And that improves their negotiating power against the big agro businesses that are buying the milk. So that's an ancient and, and much revered form of cooperative capitalism. And it involves collusion of a kind, right? It involves people conspiring with each other about what the level of production is going to be, what the level of uh, what their price is going to be. Um, so that's a form of good and positive collusion. If you think that it's good that we have small scale family farmers.
0: All right. Let's talk about uh, licensing. Is licensing like, um, I mean, a dentist, or let's say, you know, uh, barbers um, is, mm-hmm. is that a, a form of small business collusion? And, and if, if, if not, why?
2: Well, it, it can be, and it can be a good thing, right? If with licensing, in some instances, there's a clear public purpose served by having a licensing requirement to come into some particular occupation. So once upon a time, you didn't need to be have a license to be a doctor, and we had lots of quack doctors, and there was a clear public interest in creating some credentialing system for doctors. Um, other cases get a little murkier on what the you know, immediate public interest is. Um, with plumbers, you know, it's it's good that your plumber comes over and he knows what he's doing so he doesn't cause a flood in your basement. With barbers, well, there's some public hygiene argument about why it'd be good for barbers to have minimal skill sets so they don't spread dandruff through the population, right? It also helps the consumer to know better like who to buy from, because it saves you time if you know that this barber's license that tells you that you're having to do your own vetting that this barber is like minimally competent to cut your hair. So that's good. But there's another form of licensing that's often criticized, which is like, well, we're just we're just putting up this license requirement in order to limit the supply of barbers or limit the supply of taxi drivers or limit the supply of dog groomers or something like that. And that is supposed to be, and some people are telling this example of egregious rent seeking, because what you're doing is you're, using public policy to create a barrier to trade that allows you to make more money than you would otherwise, right? And part of what I argue in this piece I've just written for the Washington Monthly is actually not so fast. Some of the kind of collusion among working class people to raise their income is not really any different in kind than they're coming to form a union together. So if you think about the hair braiders, if hair braiders each individually petition their government to get a occupational licensing agreement such that you can't be a hair braider without having this license, and they therefore raise their uh, income as hair braiders, that's supposed to be a bad thing in some people's telling. But if all these hair braiders worked for a single corporation as employees and they got together and created a plan, they conspired, colluded to form a union. No one would say, well, that's somehow illegitimate or will cause poverty or is, you know, something is evil as something to be deplored. It's 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 not. It's, it's a union. But we have this weird
0: double standard frame in, in our
2: head. Yeah, double standards, right?
0: Let's take a break right there. When we come back, we'll, we'll, okay. we'll go forward as to as just, you know, why that uh, w- what is at the basis of that double standard? Um, and um, why we should push back against it. I'm Sam Cedar. This is Ring of Fire Radio. I'll be right back. I'm talking to Philip Longman from the Washington Monthly on his case for small business collusion. Hey, folks. Mike Papantonio's new book, entitled Law and Vengeance, which is the follow-up to his critically acclaimed novel Law and Disorder, is finally out and available to you to buy. The book is a legal and political thriller drawing on Papp's experience both as a skilled trial lawyer and as a nationally syndicated political talk show host. Story follows trial lawyer Gina Romano, who was first introduced in Law and Disorder on her quest for both vengeance and justice. In a whistleblower lawsuit against a weapons manufacturer who developed and sold a dangerously defective rifle scope. Pap has built a story around real life events that he's encountered as one of the top trial lawyers in America, where he's been fighting some of the world's largest and most corrupt corporations. Buy Mike Papantonio's new book, Law and Vengeance Today. Go to www.lawandvengeance.com. That's lawandvengeance.com. Check it out. I know you're going to love it. Back on Ring of Fire Radio, I'm Sam Cedar, and I'm talking with Philip Longman from the Washington Monthly about his piece, "The Case for Small Business Collusion." So, Philip, when we broke, you had explained to us the concept of rent seeking, and you had begun to tell us about the idea of of small business collusion, and uh, we had made it to the point where. You know, one of the uh, critiques that we hear from libertarians and from from some liberals uh, who are libertarian minded a little bit, that the concept of of licensing, we always hear about the overregulation and the over licensing. Uh, in particular, of, of professions, I've often had uh, you know mm-hmm. arguments with libertarians like, do we really need our hairdressers to be licensed? And you know, uh, maybe you could say that about hairdressers. Certainly, I want my plumber to have a basic level of competency. I want my electrician to. I don't want my house to burn down. Uh, but you know, when it comes mm-hmm. to hairdressers, you made the point there may be some you know elements of that. But there is a another question of. Why wouldn't we allow uh, licensing as a means of of creating some economic power? It, so let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were just about to explain and you explained how it's analogous to a union. But why not make it um, a little bit more transparent? It's a, it's a little bit of a bank shot, though, isn't it as a license or, or no?
2: You mean a, a bank shot, and that in the people sense are that, like, not?
0: Why not make fully them fully admitting
2: a, what they're up to?
0: Yeah, like why not say I'm an accredited yeah. uh hairdresser or something? <laughs> you know, something <laughs> right, to that effect. Right. I mean, w- just address that.
2: Well, well, it's it's always done in the name of some public interest, like you know, we need, we need our hairdressers to be competent and not spread disease and that sort of thing. But but my point is whether or not there's some public health reason why we need to license hairdressers or taxi drivers, right? There's another reason, and that is to avoid ruinous competition among working-class occupations such that those occupations earn a living wage. Now, upper-middle-class people know all about rent-seeking and credentialism, right? They all have their own forms of occupational licensing. If you're an academic, you know that without your Ph.D., right? You can't get on tenure track, right? And that upper middle class is always telling their children, right? You need to go to this or that institution and get this particular diploma or credential because it will allow you to make more money in the marketplace. But when working class people go to to reach for their own forms of credential, like a hair braider's license, or more to the point, perhaps a, a, a license to be a, a nurse practitioner or a uh, a nursery school teacher or, or whatever. Somehow everybody gets all upset. Well, that's that's rent seeking. You know, that's that's inefficient. That's that's waste. And they're like, well, first of all, if it's waste, most of what the upper middle class is doing is mu- much the same. And secondly, it isn't entirely waste. It's a way of balancing power on both sides of the negotiating table between working class people who don't have much power and employers who are increasingly monopolistic and have lots of power. And so in that way it's just like a union. It's a way of coming together cooperatively to strengthen our bargaining position in the labor market. We shouldn't be apologetic about it.
0: And and we just have about uh 3 or 4 minutes left here, but the on some level there's and, and we have a fairly like rigorous, I guess, um enforcement through uh, entities like the FTC of when Mm -hmm. there is small business collusion. But on the bigger side, we have lost sight of the whole concept of antitrust in terms of uh, not just as what it means for the consumer, but in terms of what it means for society at large. Talk about that, how we are living in an era almost of inverted principles surrounding, uh, surrounding antitrust.
2: Well, that's right. So when it comes to corporations, we have largely ceased antitrust enforcement. So any corporation can merge with any other corporation and become of any size. And the antitrust regulators over the last 30 years are, have basically been just saying, well, whatever, go ahead, do that. And, and the result is we have a much more concentrated economy than we did 30 or 40 years ago Um it, this, too, is a double standard. What is a corporation? A corporation is a, a group of ca- people with capital who come together, merge their capital, and collude with each other to set wages and prices and production. And And we, we call that a corporation, not a cartel. But it's different only in that it has the legal uh, and <clears throat> existence as a corporation. A corporation is a license to collude. And yet we say to little people, uh, like uh, individual sole proprietors, uh, Uber driver, uh, uh, you know, a freelance writer, uh, if you guys try and get together and and, and come to market together, that we're going to call that collusion. So in the article, I talk about how the Federal Trade Commission has been prosecuting church organists lately because church organists who earn about $20,000 a year on average – you know thought it might be a good idea if they published some salary stand recommended salary standards and and some a code of ethics that discouraged organists from competing for each other's jobs and that attracted a suit by the Federal Trade Commission. Meanwhile, the same Federal Trade Commission is giving its blessings to these giant corporations um coming together in gigantic collusion machines um and so that's the way in which our competition policy is just upside down and inside out these days. We use our anti-monopoly laws to protect monopolists and persecute the little guy, whether he's an organist or an urban Uber driver or a hair braider, um, and, and call that call that uh, collusion where everything else is just a uh, free market. It's just a ridiculous situation we're in. And, uh,
0: and so um... – we only have about 30 seconds left, but th- to re- reverse this, I guess, uh, concept, it's really we don't even need to pass any new laws, right? It's really just our government needs to readopt the original frame or the one that, let's say, existed during FDR of the whole mm-hmm. concept of antitrust.
2: Yes. Yeah, so uh, most of the 20th century, um, we had a competition policy that was very hard on big corporations, that colluded or just got too big. And we used antitrust to break them up. Simultaneously, we had all kinds of laws that not only allowed, but encouraged small businesses to cooperate with each other, whether it was forming literal cooperatives or fair trade laws that allowed, you know, independently owned stores to stand up against the big chain stores. Um, and, 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 other other uh, forms of, of guilds and a, a trade associations that allowed smaller players to come together and share notes on best practices and even share notes on best prices
1: right
2: and we had a we had a regulatory regime that recognized that it's a whole lot different when little people do that than when giant corporations do that well and what we have now is we stop we stopped prosecuting the large corporations and started prosecuting the little guy and that's what we call antitrust today. Philip Longman, thank
0: you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Sam.
0: Philip Longman is a senior editor at the Washington Monthly and the policy director at the Open Markets Institute. When we come back, Heather Digby-Parton will join me to analyze more of the news from this past week. That's just ahead. I'm Sam Cedar. You're listening to Ring of Fire Radio. Check out ROFpodcast.com to support this program.
1: You can put a stick in my spokes I can be the body of jokes I can be the laughing star I can be the hoax But I ain't gonna lose you No, I ain't
0: I'm a trial lawyer, I've spent countless hours pouring through documents that tell the story about the ugliest side of corporate America. Corporate media refuses to talk about these issues. The conduct by this company was deplorable. I'm going to paint a clear picture about how disturbing, how corrupt corporate conduct has become in modern America.
2: These are stories that no one else can tell. I'm Mike Papantonio, host of America's
1: Lawyer, question more.